from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz Headquarters at 350 Frank Ogawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the growing momentum for science-based targets, the new world of cascading materials, how a supply chain exec thinks about sustainability, and GM's driving ambition on EVs. We're charging ahead this week on 350. It's October 6, 2017. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower. And joining me across the country is Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello. How are you today, Joel? <laughs> you know, it's been a long week. We've done a lot going on, and um, I'm, I'm a little pooped. Yeah, it's kind but, of hard um, to keep a track of your calendar. You're uh, doing a lot of talking this week. Well, doing a lot of talking, but yeah, I mean, I'll t- talk about what I talked about or uh, conversations I hosted. So on Tuesday, I hosted a conversation uh, between Paul Hawken, the author, uh, uh, environmentalist, uh, entrepreneur, and author of Drawdown. We've had him on several times. And Leah Seligman, who runs the climate program at the B Team. This was uh, for Marin County, just north of San Francisco. They were launching a new uh, climate agenda that the Board of Supervisors had just passed. So that was Tuesday night, Thursday night. I was at the Pacific Institute, just about four blocks from here in Oakland, which is uh, a water think tank, and hosted a conversation between Jason Morrison, their executive director, and uh, Felicia Marcus, who heads the California State Water Board. This was in celebration of Pacific Institute's 30th anniversary. I hosted a webcast with Miracle Grow. Um, and then we had a team sailing, which unfortunately, I'm so sorry you couldn't join us from, you know, sail in from New Jersey, but we went out on the San Francisco Bay. It's kind of a, just a, a, a family outing and it was, it was pretty fun. Yeah, this is one of those weeks where I really regret being outside of, of the Bay Area. I just, uh, there's a lot of um, interesting conferences coming up too that I wish I could put on my calendar, but I'm safely in New York and New Jersey and I'll have to I'll have to deal with them from afar, I suppose. Well, there's stuff going on on your side of, of the country, too. In fact, week after next, I'll be in New Jersey, Montvale, New Jersey. Is that near you? As right near me. Oh, really? All right. I'm going to be uh, keynoting a sustainability conference put on by uh, Berkshire Hathaway, uh, Warren Buffett's company, and uh, hosted by one of the Berkshire companies, Benjamin Moore. So maybe you and I will paint the town red. Or maybe or we will. Green or something. Um, and you, are you just, just lying low? I am lying low, although I have to say I have, I've had a spate of really inspirational stories um, that I've written this week, and including one uh, regarding my, one of my, uh, I won't call, I will call, I, I will call them one of my favorite companies, Salesforce. Um, they just continue to amaze me with their ingenuity. Uh, they have a, a very active, venture capital arm, I think, I think as many people in the tech industry know. And this week, they decided to take $50 million uh, of that fund and dedicate it to what they're calling impact investments. So including uh, technologies and, and models that are based, you know, focused on, on enabling sustainable business. So that that's where I've been. I'm kind of heads down, but um, 
I have to say that was probably one of the most inspirational stories I've had the chance to write in a while. So well, I, I would never accuse you of actually lying low. I just meant that uh, you're the hardest working woman in show business when it comes to uh, at least sustainability reporting. So uh, yeah, lots of good stories and more to come. Let's get into the week in review. So we already mentioned one of the stories you did uh, about Salesforce and their, and their new um, venture impact fund. But another one you did is about corporate buyers and utilities and how they're coming together to embrace a low carbon future. What's going on there? Yeah, so this is one of those stories that I was able to piece together from my uh, sessions, the sessions I attended at the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance Summit, as well as our Verge conference um, in late September. And the, the sort of overriding theme is that utilities and, and corporate buyers have a lot to say to each other right now. Um, as we look at how the renewable energy movement uh, and, and the ability for companies to source clean power, how that's going to scale, it really does come down to companies and utilities having a much closer dialogue than they ever did in the past. I think it's safe to say that like in the past, the utilities were kind of a soliloquy, right? You must do this, and here's our plan. And together with the regulatories, they kind of dictated the various options in certain markets, especially regulated ones, of course. But now, um, even in the regulated markets, you, you see a lot of dialogues happening, two-way dialogues. Companies are, are talking to their power suppliers and saying, this is what we need. Um, we want to buy solar and wind energy. And that means we're get, that means we can help you invest in it. So, the you know the uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, the motivation is is how you scale the the corporate renewables movement, and uh, without that dialogue, we're not going to get much farther. I think than the, the the big big companies, the ones that have the buying power to to sign these virtual power purchase agreements. This dialogue that we're seeing enables a much larger group of of companies across many more different sectors uh, take advantage of things like green tariffs. We've seen uh, a number of those come in place this year. And uh, so that's really what I was seeing. Uh, and, and I heard a lot of really constructive things at the uh, the Verge and Reba conferences last month. So this brings up two questions that I have. One is, how are the utilities responding? I mean, they have traditionally been you know, so conservative, uh, but just so resistant to this kind of thing. And, and you know, conventional wisdom in the renewables crowd is that you know, traditional utilities are kind of dinosaurs and they, they either don't know it or they know it and aren't, aren't doing much about it except for just a handful of utilities like PG&E here in California. Do you, are you seeing anything, any progress there? You know, it's, we are seeing progress and it's coming from lots of different sectors. I mean, the, the utilities that I'm quoting uh, in the story that I quoted in the story this week were ranging from Con Edison um, in New York, of course, to Eversource Energy, which is a huge provider in New England, um, the Berkshire Hathaway Energy Company, uh, which has tremendous footprint um, across lots of different areas in the country. And they're all, I mean, the, the, the thing is that these, these companies know that their model is changing. The grid is becoming much more distributed, whether they like it or not. And it's one of those, those matters of 
if you don't want to have the conversation, then um, th- some companies are going to ra- go around you. You've, you've heard about organizations like Microsoft and MGM Resorts, which have actually literally paid millions of dollars to walk away from their existing relationships. Um, now, of course, not everyone can do that, but um, the the utilities are definitely listening. And it is not, like I said before, it's not just in deregulated markets uh, where you know they have they're being forced to be more innovative or they're going to get competed out of the marketplace. It's it's also in regulated markets where the the organizations are are trying to become much much more operationally efficient um, and and look at the grid as an, a mechanism of enabling new services that could be totally new for for a utility. So I do see it. I mean, I'm not. I, I tend to be a, one of those optimistic people, but I do see evidence that that organizations are listening. So my other question is, is this going to grow the list of companies? I know your answer is going to be yes, but I'm what I'm thinking about is that for years, it's always been the same list of companies that are the biggest corporate renewables energy buyers. There's Google, there's Facebook, there's Whole Foods, there's Walmart, Johnson & Johnson, GM. Um, we could probably, you know, as a class, recite them in unison. And it, it doesn't change all that much. Microsoft, you just mentioned, where are we going to see you know, the next big tranche of, of buyers stepping up so we have a, a longer and longer and longer list of, of companies that have made commitments in this area? Yeah, I'll give you two examples of, of organizations that I think could really benefit from green tariffs in particular. REI, right? The big um, cooperative that sells fitness and outdoor apparel and equipment. And they were actually instrumental in helping... Uh, shape the green tariff out in the Puget Sound area. Um, they they actually worked with up, up in with Seattle. The, yeah, up in Seattle. Um, actually, but also in Washington State. And the thing about REI is right; it doesn't have one big location where it can sort of inspire <laughs> a utility to do something. But it has lots of distributed locations, and the green tariffs allow an organization to just look at the model a little bit differently. And it, and it lets, lets a utility kind of know that isn't, it isn't just in one place. And, and another organization that was talking at, uh, at the Reba conference, Marriott, lots of different hotel properties, some franchise, some, you know, so they, they're able to, these programs are able to sort of look at things in an aggregated manner that, that wasn't possible before. So I guess, I suppose what you could say is, you're still talking a lot of, about a lot of power that's being affected, but it's distributed, right, over many different locations, which, which hasn't been the case up to now. And, you know, I think what it allows is, is others to participate uh, and by sort of aggregating, aggregating the demand and, and able to, you know, again, the, utilities and, the utility isn't able to, to invest or operate or deliver it at its scale, but there's lots of different um, organizations that are picking, coming in to pick, pick it up. And lots of options, new business models, and yep. uh, of how to buy yep. it too. So great. Well, the other story that I think was interesting was Cassandra Sweet's piece on science-based climate targets. Um, it's about uh, some of the number of companies, about 300 or so companies led by a bunch of apparel companies like Gap, Nike, Levi Strauss, but 300 others that have pledged to set science-based targets for climate change. Uh, this is according to a report from CDP, once known as the Carbon Disclosure Project and the World Resources Institute and WWF. This is interesting. It's also, I have to say, a little controversial uh, at the event 
that I mentioned earlier that I uh, hosted with uh, Marin County and had uh, Paul Hawken and Leah Seligman uh, in conversation. Um, you know, Paul, who is no shrinking violet and quite outspoken and uh, likes to, you know, punch holes in uh, things and also worries about the language of how we talk about this stuff, kind of railed into science-based targets, particularly science-based target is kind of each company's fair share of climate impact, carbon emissions, um, if they were to divide up the two degrees Celsius that we're trying to keep cl climate change under, um, you know, their fair share. And so he said, well, that's, you know, first of all, two degrees is kind of just a number. It's it's not really a, a, a goal. And, and the goal should not be just two degrees. The goal should be, well, his, his word, drawdown, his title of his book. And, you know, that in some ways that this is not the best kind of goal. It's certainly not naming what we want to do, which is to not limit climate change, but to reverse it. So I don't know. I just thought I'd channel Paul there for a second. But I think it is interesting still what, all these companies that are stepping up. Alternatively, you know, I, and I, I get that. And I actually, I mean, as a, an aspirational goal, I totally agree with, with, with that argument, but what the science-based goals movement um, says to me is that the companies are actually getting a far better accounting of where they need to, to be improving. Right. So you can't, you have to go through a pretty rigorous process to be able to, um, have those goals blessed, right? So I think it, the number is somewhere around 305 companies have declared that they're going to have science-based targets, et cetera, et cetera. But only 72 of them have actually managed to get those targets approved, right? And 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 to actually have that their math blessed in some way, saying that you know what, this is a reasonable goal, it's achievable, it's it's it makes sense, right? And that's kind of you know, aspirationally, yeah, we should be doing a lot more, but at least these targets have some founding in reality and practicality. And I, I, I appreciate that side of it as well, because you'll be able to see whether people are really delivering against them. Yeah. And the other argument in favor of science-based targets is that the old, what gets measured gets managed, that you've got to have some basis of, of, of understanding where you are and where you want to go um, and, and being able to benchmark against that and you know, track your progress. That's the good side. That's what I think where this is useful. I think that's kind of what you're saying, Heather. But I, you know, we we do also want to make sure that we're naming the right goal. And and I think so. This is sort of one of those, you know, well, of course, there should be companies that are measuring, not just picking numbers about reducing greenhouse gas emissions, but actually picking a number based on science. Um, and as out of fashion as science seems to be these days. So, um, I do think that net-net, this is a positive trend. Last week, you may remember that we hosted the show from Ecolab headquarters in St. Paul, Minnesota, which was where we held our uh, Green Biz Executive Network meeting. And while I was there, I had a chance, uh, the group had a chance to hear from Alex Blanco, Executive Vice President, Chief Supply Chain Officer from Ecolab. And I took him aside, wanted to hear a little bit more about uh, the work he does. And uh, Alex, first of all, thank you for taking a few minutes. My pleasure. It's good to be here. Uh, how does a supply chain person think about sustainability, just sort of at, the, at the high level? Uh, is it something that uh, is part of, very much part of what you do, or is it uh, fit over to the side? Well, what, how do you think about that at Ecolab? 
I, I think most supply chain professionals uh, uh, have adopted it as a core responsibility of supply chains. In the conversations that I have with other chief supply chain officers, it's top of mind for the, the company, it's top of mind for the shareholders, uh, and quite frankly, it's top of mind for the talent that they're trying to bring into the company. And so, you know, the millennials that you're bringing into the company, the, the engineers, the, the, the people coming in, they want to know that they're working for a company that, you know, does good and does good for the environment and for people. And so I think that's the starting point of the conversation. I guess the other point of it is uh, is most uh, most uh, supply chain professionals also view this as, as a win-win opportunity. In most cases, eliminating waste, eliminating losses, you know, generates you know savings and, and generates capacity. And so at the end of the day, is it doesn't it there is there I guess maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago, maybe there was the sense of the kind of the either or of the, you know, you know, either I work on this or I work on saving money. Well, no, it doesn't have to be. It, it absolutely can be an opportunity to, uh, to do what's right and at the same time is, is add, you know, add shareholder value. So much of the conversation, particularly around water now, has to do with risk, um, supply chain risk, uh, business continuity risk, financial risk, reputational risk. How does that factor into to the work that you're doing in terms of, of finding ways to mitigate that risk or address it as uh, water issues uh, crop up all over the world? Well, I, I will tell you that uh, from a personal uh, standpoint, I've got, we've got my, my wife has family in Puerto Rico right now, and there's a lot of people who are struggling with lack of water right now. And so water infrastructure, the importance of you know water quality and, and the availability of water is something that's top of mind right now for me personally. From a professional point of view is, you know, we as supply chains, you know, can't operate in most cases without a reliable su supply of water. And very often we are in environments where we're getting, um, quote, cheap water, and, but the reality is, is that the, the price that we're paying doesn't reflect the inherent risk associated with the lack of infrastructure and the risks associated with that infrastructure. And, and that's why we, you know, Ecolab created and jointly created the, uh, the water risk monetizer. It's an opportunity to say when there's a big dichotomy between what you're paying and what the water risk monetizer is saying, it says that there's a risk. It says that there's a possibility that, that something's going to happen and, and you're not going to be able to get water. And if you're not going to be able to get water, you're not going to be able to produce and you're not going to be able to service your, your customers. So it really becomes a, an element of survival and business continuity for, for me as a supply chain leader. We heard actually one of the companies, the big uh, auto company uh, at the meeting this week uh, talk about how they had to rethink some of their siting, plant siting. Is that something that you're seeing more where water becomes a oh, constraint? Ab oh, absolutely. You know, if you've got a water-intensive process, you know, even if it's not a water-intensive process, you want, to, you want to know whether or not you're placing your assets in a place where you're going to be able to get reliable supply. And uh, so absolutely, I mean, we have a checklist of all the things that you look for and, you know, uh, and, you know, reliable, safe, clean water supply is absolutely one of the critical er things that you need to do. One of the questions that the group asked you in the room is, was how a lot of the sustainability executives don't get a chance to talk to their supply chain, uh, to, to, to you and your equivalent in, other, in their own companies. Um, you talked a little bit about w why you should have that conversation, and I think they probably get that. I think it's maybe also how. In other words, how to approach a supply chain from a sustainability point of view to have a conversation that may not yet be happening. Are there any, so is there a language, is there an approach that, that you see might be uh, effective? 
Look, I, I, let me start by saying that in general, I think that you're pushing on an open door. I think most of the supply chain professionals want to, you know, leaders and, and chief supply chain officers want to hear and, and, and want to engage in this conversation. They're very, very busy. They've got a lot of things on their plate. But, and so I guess the advice that I, that I would give people is, is, you know, look, focus on, you know, what's, what's usually in a company, there's really one or two things that'll take you to glory and one or two things that'll, that'll kill you. You know, usually a lot of the things that, that have to do with sustainability are, are, can affect your reliable, you know, safe supply of your customers. If you come in and talk to the to, to chief supply chain officer and address the concerns that are hottest on his mind and link it to, you know, what sustainability can do to support that, you're going to get their attention and it's going to get increased in the priority list. But, but I really do believe that in most cases, I really do believe most chief supply chain officers, you know, you're pushing on an open door. Can you give me an example of, a, of an issue you might come in with that would be uh, addressed something that's a pain point for I'll, on supply I'll, chain? I'll use an example out of my own, my own business here in North America. You know, we're tight on capacity right now. And, and the good news is we're growing and we're tight on capacity. And, uh, you know, we've identified a project in, in one of our plants where, you know, by, by using uh, washouts capabilities and some chemistry instead of water to really to clean out, we're find that we, we can significantly reduce the amount of usage of water, number one, but number two is, is we can reduce changeover times and dramatically increase capacity. And so it's a win, win, win kind of solution. And so it, it doesn't have to be either or. And it's a, you know, it's a great project and it's a great opportunity. And I think there's lots of exa examples like that. So it's understanding some of the constraints the business is going through and right. how can sustainability address that? Exactly. And look, it's the same advice that I give to give anybody in, 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 a, in a Fortune 500 company is, is understand, you know, what's the business model for your company, understand what's important to the company, and then, you know, put stuff in context of is how, how the work on sustainability kind of fits into the overall importance of the company. Yeah, that makes sense, and uh, it's some, something that people should be doing more, and I think there's a, a conversation waiting to be had. Absolutely. Great. Alex Blanco, Executive Vice President, Chief Supply Chain Officer at Ecolab, thanks so much for talking to me. My pleasure. Thank you very much. organization's waste can be an essential material for another company's manufacturing operations. The Cascading Materials Vision, a partnership launched in June by the World Wildlife Fund, the Recycling Partnership, the American Chemistry Council, and other corporate stakeholders, lays out the roadmap for moving recycled materials through supply chains. We asked Anya Hallmeiser, Associate Editor, to check in with the organization. And uh, joining me is Anya. Hello, Anya. Hi, Heather. So I got to ask you, what does this partnership hope to accomplish? So the Cascading Materials Vision is a sort of complement to the concept of the circular economy. We cover the circular economy a lot. It is um, this sort of a theory to keep molecules in play by keeping resources in use for as long as possible within the manufacturing process or after they're sold to extract their maximum value, then allow them to be easily um, reassembled and for materials to be recovered and reused at the end of their life. But what the Cascading Materials Vision does is provides a platform for materials management. So it lays out a roadmap for organizations, recycling um, facilities, and for communities to get these recycled materials from curbside bin to factory floor. And so as signatories to the vision, um, there are a bunch of corporate signatories like Ball, Keurig Green Mountain, McDonald's, Nestle, 
they all have found value in secondary materials. So another thing that the cascading materials does is put a value on the recycled or recyclable resources. And it also puts a carbon value on them as in measuring the energy intensity of procuring materials, um, secondary materials, which have already been used, compared to naturally extracting um, primary resources. So doing that, um, it can transform the economy while reducing industry's burden on the environment. Waste management, according to um, data put out by the Vision, um, can cut greenhouse gases 10 to 15 percent. And even just recycling plastic packaging can save, can save the economy up to $120 billion. So by putting a value on these materials, first of all, and also educating companies and local governments about sourcing them, is what the vision is about. So I checked with Adam Shalapin, sustainability manager at Ball, which is a major manufacturer of aluminum cans. The cascading materials vision led to a 95% energy savings and decreased carbon emissions from sourcing aluminum, and this is his story. Why did Ball become a signatory to the vision? You said that it was aligned with the work you were already doing. So one of our uh, four sustainability pillars is our product stewardship uh, sustainability pillar, which is basically uh, continuously trying to improve the sustainability credentials of all of our products for all of our stakeholders, including our customers. And uh, being a packaging company, Primarily, um, uh, the recyclability of metal packaging is a is a big focus for us. Um, you know, the, the end of life management of our products is really essential to reducing the environmental impacts. Um, as you may or may not know, recycling aluminum and other metal products saves about 95% of the energy to to make a product from primary aluminum. So, increasing that recycling rate. Uh, is really essential to uh, reducing the overall life cycle carbon emissions associated with our products, which we see as increasingly important. Some of the work that we're doing already is uh, working with the an organization called the Recycling Partnership, which is based in the U.S., which uh, works with communities that are looking to boost their recycling rate, and they work on education and infrastructure uh, to help boost that recycling rate. And we also work with other recycling organizations uh, around the world, uh, one which is called Metal Matters and is primarily focused in Europe. So we're always focused on the end-of-life management of our products. And uh, as you know, the, the Cascading Materials Vision is really focused on the secondary use of materials. So it, it falls right in line with, with our focus. How is it different from the circular economy concept? What differentiates it within your business strategy? So what it means to Ball is, you know, how can we uh, how can we work with existing or new members of the value chain to decrease the environmental impacts of our products, and not only work with them, but work with them in a very systematic way. Um, when you look at the concept of circular economy, obviously. It has um, guiding principles, but it is a very uh, broad-based concept. And I think the cascading materials vision is a little bit narrower in scope, and uh, the guiding principles are a little bit more focused, which allows to 
have a little bit more of a focused conversation um, with other members of the value chain and how we can systematically approach things. So not just finding um, any outlet for our products, but finding you know the best re-entry of our products into into the value chain and, and use of, secondary use of those products. And what is the business case for uh, implementing the cascading materials? Sure. So the business case is, uh, you know, really reducing future supply risks um, for aluminum and, and our other metals by, you know, pushing responsible end-of-life management and, and helping increase those recycling rates and, and bringing some of that secondary aluminum back into the market consistently. Um, and, you know, in turn, as I said previously, we're reducing the life cycle carbon emissions of our products, which we feel helps us gain a competitive edge um, against competing substrates by trying to actively help our customers reduce their packaging uh, greenhouse gas emissions and meet their supply chain science-based greenhouse gas target goals. Um, so not only protecting our supply chain, but also uh, gaining a competitive edge with our customers. And, you know, ultimately, every time a, a consumer throws metal packaging into the trash, whether it's, you know, because of lack of education or because of lack of infrastructure in their community or where they happen to be disposing of that can, um, and it ends up in a landfill, you know, ultimately, we're just, just throwing money away. Uh, aluminum has a really high economic value in the recycling chain and, and really helps subsidize the recycling of other materials as well. So um, there's, a, there's a big business case for increasing that recycling rate. How, do you, how does it help you collaborate with other recycling stakeholders? So in terms of obtaining uh, sustainably sourced secondary materials, I think that the aluminum value chain is a little bit unique in that it is a a pretty um you know well developed um chain in terms of you know it's a very easy material to recycle uh aluminum beverage cans are you know a near perfect um product when it comes to recyclability so because the value chain is so developed i wouldn't say that we're as the the benefits that we're gaining are in terms of obtaining secondary materials. Um, where we really see the benefit and how it fits into our business strategy, um, I'll actually take it back to our discussion on carbon and that competitive edge that we hope to gain by uh, reducing the life cycle carbon emissions of our products. Uh, increasing the recycling rate of aluminum cans is really the main lever into decreasing uh, the carbon associated um, with our products, as you noted, with the 95% energy savings. And because that can is infinitely recyclable, um, you know, we're already having discussions with our customers about how we can help them meet their science-based uh, greenhouse gas goals, which gives us that competitive edge and really works into our business strategy.
This week, the biggest U.S. automaker, General Motors, announced a big acceleration of its move to electric vehicles. It now plans to introduce 20 new all-electric models before the year 2023, with two of those introductions coming within the next 18 months. General Motors didn't make this decision in a vacuum, of course. The all-electric Chevrolet Bolt, which it began selling nationwide in August, is a core part of the company's urban mobility platform called Maven. The program now includes 10,000 vehicles in 17 U.S. cities. GM has been renting the Bolt vehicles to drivers participating in ride-sharing and food delivery services in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Boston for some time. How is that experiment going? I recently caught up with Peter Kosick, the general manager for GM's urban mobility strategy. Here are some of his thoughts on the allure of electric vehicles, how GM's Maven program is helping cities like Boston gather data, and what surprised him most about the test so far. The last five years, everybody's been speculating on what can be. Everybody's been talking about how good things can be once all of these things arrive. And the reality is a lot of the things have already arrived. A 240-mile EV that can get 160 miles of charging. On-demand ride-sharing and delivery systems that now are much more effective in satisfying consumers and, and all. So, so the first is, you know, that, that things that, that were previously aspirations are now here and they can be deployed. And I think the deployment of the Bolt EV in California into the taxi duty cycle is one example of that. And the adoption of those vehicles by drivers who are driving them for their income caused a lot of speculation and debate at General Motors before we did it. A lot of people were saying, look, this is their, this is their tool for making income. They're not going to want one more hassle. They're not going to want to think about range or where can I charge it or all that. In reality, they love it. It's a conversation piece. The conversation when a rider gets in is, what is this? Not, what's the weather going to be like today? Or how do you like driving for Uber or Lyft or whatever? So, so, so this is going on now. And insofar as there is the requisite charging infrastructure, not only can it be scaled, it should be scaled because it, so to speak, fires on all cylinders. You get jobs, you get more ride-sharing availability, you get carbon-free miles, um, you get the promise of uh, laying in autonomous, which will allow better safety and uh, the selection of routes according to real intelligence and not leaving what route is taken to the free will of the driver and get better integration with mass transit, all of those things. So these things are, are happening right now, and I think then the next part of the discussion is, okay, what is next? I think that insofar as we are now part of a much bigger ecosystem than where we have been playing with 100 years of design, build, sell, I think that um, the first biggest opportunities are in cities so I think cities the whether it's a, uh, a Department of Transportation or an innovation group like New Urban Mechanics in Boston and then their other constituents a sustainability head a parking provider someone who's working on tolling systems these kinds of things so I think the city 
is in the best position to, to articulate what the desired outcomes are, what their goals are, economic and serving underserved areas and getting better efficiency with mass transit and uh, uh, complementing mass transit rather than cannibalizing mass transit, all those things. So first on the list is cities. Then there are other providers like uh, utility companies, um, charge station um, um, uh, deployers and operators. Um, and so I'll give Boston as, a, as an example. We're talking at that same meeting with the city and the various departments of the city. Eversource was there as well because they're, they play a big role in the implementation of charging infrastructure. And I think with the kinds of projects like I just described as in California, it changes the discussion. You can you can show up and say, well, look, you know, this is certain demand. This isn't this isn't you taking a risk putting charging infrastructure in place. This is this is you knowing that there's going to be demand for it. And you've got two DC fast charge stations downtown right now. You can start talking about stranded assets or how many is enough. Way past two. <laughs> if if. If Massachusetts and Boston, if San Francisco and California really believe in electrification like like we do, and I think the fact that the bolt exists is testament to the fact that we do, um, then it, it changes the discussion. And the discussion is no longer around what's it going to look like in five years, but what should we be doing in the next five months? I, I was surprised um, at the extent to which these drivers were not only willing to drive EVs, but were actually wanting to drive EVs. We get a lot of feedback around how they're quick, you know, and, they, and they're cool and they're quiet and they're a bit of a conversation piece for the riders getting into them. Um, that, that's, that's one um, that I think has, has surprised me. Um, I think uh, the extent to which it has been a challenge in working with cities and other constituencies, even when you have compelling data, that 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 it, it makes sense to put in place infrastructure, and that even if fast charging infrastructure is in, is put in place for ride sharing and delivery services, which is something that's already demonstrated, that that same charging infrastructure could be accessed by residents of multi-unit dwellings who don't have access to level two charging at home, thereby increasing, you know, the number of, of candidates for viable EV ownership. Um, it's surprising to me how hard it is to move these things forward. But I think there it's that, you know, it's, you know, it's clear that these things are complicated and there are a variety of different objectives among city departments and other providers, whether it's a, a utility or, or us as the, as the system provider. Um, it, you know, it's, it's, a complicated, it's a complicated problem and it takes time. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find more about the organization's stories, events, and other things we've mentioned in this episode. Send us an email, 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. Thanks to Greenbiz 350 director Stephanie Joyce and Greenbiz managing editor Elsa Wenzel. We'll be back next week for another edition of Greenbiz 350. From all of us here at Greenbiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. 